If you would, take out your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the Gospel of John, it would be in chapter 5, starting verse 25. John 5, 25, hear now the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you now for this morning in which we can gather together as your people and set our eyes upon your Son. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to sing your praises and to hear uh, the preached word. Father, we ask that you would come now and that you would speak to the hearts of your people, that they would hear your voice, that your people would respond to your voice, and that you would use the power of your voice to conform your people to the image of Christ. Father, I pray that this morning that your son would be exalted, that he would be lifted on high, that his name would be shown to be worthy of all worship. And Lord, I pray that we would worship him rightly, that the affections of our heart would be set upon him. And Lord, I pray for those here who may not know you. Lord, I pray that they would see the gravity of their current state of life, the predicament that they face with the coming day of judgment. And Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes that they may flee to Christ today and trust in him. So Lord, we ask for you to do what only you can do. We ask for your power to be at work among us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Well, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but last week was quite a week in world news, and I anticipate the full ramifications of what has transpired are yet to be seen. But with a banking crisis spreading and billions of dollars evaporating, it would seem the truth of one proverb has been displayed to the entire world. That's Proverbs 23, 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it, for when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Now certainly the point of that proverb is not to downplay the value of working hard or earning a living, nor is it condemning wealth. You, you could not read the rest of the book of Proverbs and come away with that conclusion. Proverbs 13 tells us that it is a good man who leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Uh, we are to be wise stewards of what God 
has given us. So it's not wrong to be wealthy. But what is being said here is that we are not to live for it. That it is not to be the thing that drives us or motivates all of our decisions and directions in life. That we are not to weary ourselves spending our lives simply pursuing wealth. Why? Well, the most significant reason would be because it's simply idolatry. But a more practical reason, and the reason embedded in that text, is because of the uncertainty of it. Riches, like anything else in this fallen world, are uncertain. They can sprout wings and fly away in an instant. No matter how much one amasses, it is uncertain. It can disappear very quickly. And that was put on display vividly this week as billions disappeared. It's for this reason that Paul instructed wealthy believers to have a right perspective on their wealth. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, believers are not to live lives for that which is uncertain, things like wealth. Rather, we are to live for that which is certain. None of us knows what tomorrow holds, because there is nothing certain in this life. Not our health, not our families, not our wealth, not our jobs, not our economy, not our country. Nothing. But there is one thing coming that is absolutely certain for every single person who has ever lived. It is guaranteed. And that is judgment. Every single person no matter what their lives have looked like, no matter what their future holds, has the exact same day coming for them. And that is the day of judgment. For the believer, that means entrance into the kingdom of God. For the unbeliever, that means entrance into eternal condemnation. It will have different ramifications for different people, but nevertheless, it is the same certainty for all people. It is a certainty that you can bank on. On that day, the world will see the infinite authority of Christ rendered with eternal and irreversible judgments given to every single soul. And that's what we're going to be looking at here in our passage Today, and today we're jumping back into this amazing discourse that Jesus has been giving in response to the accusations against him. If you remember, this chapter began with Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, which resulted in the beginnings of the persecutions of his ministry. The same persecutions that would last for a couple years and eventually lead to his bloody execution on a cross. But these initial charges were both in regard to his breaking the Sabbath and to blasphemy. 
because he was calling God his own father. And verse 18 makes it clear that these Jews were already seeking to kill him. So in response to their evil intentions and their accusations, Jesus gives this discourse. And the whole point of this is to reveal himself, his divine nature, and his divine work to these Jews. Thus, not alleviating their suspicion that he was making himself equal to God, but confirming it that he is, in fact, God. This discourse, as we have seen, uh, as Ryle pointed out, it breaks up into three main units. His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship. Now last week we began that middle section as we looked at His divine commission. And if you remember, within that divine commission there was two responsibilities that were mentioned that Christ was to carry out. And that was the giving of life and the execution of judgment. And then Christ made the stunning declaration last week that all of this has been given to him, these responsibilities, in order that it may be seen that he is equal with the Father, that he is to be honored just as the Father is honored. Perhaps the boldest and most blatant declaration of his divinity in all of Scripture. For anyone else to say this would be blasphemy, worthy of death, but not for Christ, because He is, in fact, the Lord of glory. And as such, He not only has the commission to carry out these two responsibilities, but He also has the authority to do so. And that's what we'll be exploring today. Today we're looking at His divine authority, the divine authority of the Son of Christ. And we're going to see his authority exercised in two different ways. Authority present, how he exercised his authority now in the present age, and authority future, how he will exercise that same authority upon his return. And what we're going to see today is that his authority is, in fact, absolute in our lives. It has dictated who we are now as Believers, and it will dictate our future realities on the great day that is coming. The day when the authority of the Son of God will be supremely displayed to the world. And that day is coming. And that day is coming quickly. And we need to understand that we are to be governed by the truth of His authority in our lives, both present and future. As Christians, as believers, as followers and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, our lives should be ruled by an understanding that Christ is King. His authority is absolute and all-powerful, and we owe everything that He has done for us to His authority. This is what should drive everything for us. This is what should motivate us. This is what should shape and dictate our decision-making. And this is what we should be banking our lives on, the authority of Christ. So let's look at this. Let's start by looking at the authority of Christ as it is exercised in the present. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now this is the third time in this discourse that Jesus uses the authoritative formula, Amen, Amen, translated truly, truly. Now, there's 25 times in this gospel that Jesus uses this to preface his words. And in three of those times are right here in a row in this discourse. As R.C. Sproul once said, whenever we read in the text of Scripture, our Lord giving a statement that is prefaced with a double amen, it is time to pay very close attention. And the reason for that here is obvious. We are... We are talking about eternal matters. What Jesus says here is relevant for every soul that has ever lived. But we do need to ask what he means here, because there is a paradox in his words. He says, the hour is coming, and yet the hour is now here. How can this, this hour of which he speaks be both futuristic and present at the same time. Well, this is essentially getting at the already and not yet paradigm of the new covenant. This is a theme that runs all throughout the New Testament, and it applies to several different theological aspects of what God is doing in the new covenant. For example, when Christ came, the coming of Christ, as a result of His first advent, the kingdom of God was already inaugurated on earth. The kingdom is growing now and has been for 2,000 years as His people are actively gathered, submitting to Him as Lord. But the kingdom of God is not yet. It has not yet come in its fullness. That is a future reality. Or another already not yet. Christ is already reigning and it has been exalted above all of His enemies but Hebrews 2.8 points out that we do not yet see the manifest reality of His rule and His reign on earth. That is coming. Or perhaps a more relevant example to our passage here, to what Jesus is saying, is that we already have eternal life. Eternal life has already been granted to those who believe. But we who believe have not yet experienced the full glory of what that will mean in eternity. We have already been made God's children, but 1 John 3 says what we will be has not yet been revealed. We've already been made holy, but we have not yet seen our holiness in its fullness. And we could go on and on with this. There is an already not yet reality to the entirety of the Christian life and to the entirety of the kingdom of God. And it is because of that paradigm that Jesus can speak of an hour that is both coming and is now here. The question is, how is he applying it in this context? He says that of this hour, it is an hour that when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, the futuristic aspect to this, he is going to get to here in a minute. But the emphasis on this verse, in verse 25, is now, is what's going on in the present. It's already happening. This is a present-day reality. The dead are already rising. 
How so? What is that in, in reference to? Well, clearly, this is a reference to what happens at the point when someone believes. To see that, you have to understand the Bible's perspective, Jesus' perspective on the spiritual state of the human heart outside of Christ, which is death. The Bible does not speak of sinners as those who just need a little help. It does not speak of them as as those who just need to, to turn things around a little bit. It speaks of them as those who are dead. And this goes all the way back to the garden. This is what happened to the fall. God told Adam, you you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of it. And it was Satan, the father of lies, who deceived Eve into not believing the word of God. He said, you shall not surely die. But when she ate and gave to her husband, and he ate, they died. They died. Not hundreds of years later when they would physically die, they died in that moment, and all of humanity with them. Every human who has ever been born of woman, every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve is born dead spiritually separated from the life of God. We saw the Apostle Paul say this explicitly when we went through the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he said, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which, in which you once walked. See, this was all of us prior to Christ. And that is all people outside of Christ. The Bible's diagnosis of the human heart is death. It is dead. It is not alive. It has no spiritual life whatsoever. So the sinner's need is not a mere reformation. It's not a turning over of a new leaf. It's not a merely changing of their ways or a changing of their mind. It's not even a new religion or a religious experience. None of that will do. None of that will do any good for a dead person. Now, the sinner's need now in in the present is resurrection from the dead, something no sinner can provide for himself. And there's actually only one who has both the authority and the power to raise the dead, and that is God alone. And that prerogative has been entrusted to God the Son. The same voice that spoke life into being at creation is still speaking life into being this day. This is why Jesus says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. This is is a description of what happens when someone comes to saving faith This is what we discussed about when we talked about the doctrine of irresistible grace and the effectual call. God gives those who are dead ears to hear through regeneration, and they hear the Master's voice calling them to life, to true life, to life in God, to life in Christ, to eternal life. And those who hear the Master's call will respond. 
as Jesus said in the end of verse 25, those who hear will live. Or as he will say later in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The power and significance of the voice of Christ is on display all through the gospel of John. And the truth is, any decision that you made to follow Christ was a decision that was empowered and enabled by the fact that your master called you out through the gospel. Whether you heard the gospel in a sermon, or you read it in the scriptures, or you witnessed to by a friend or a parent, when your eyes were open and your ears were opened, you understood and heard the voice of the Son of God calling you effectually to Himself, calling you from death to life. And by the sheer power of His voice, He made you alive in Him forevermore. You do not come to this by the strength of your will or by the morality of your decision or by the intelligence of your mind. No, you came to this by the power of Christ calling you to life in Him. It was Him bestowing life upon you. In fact, it's not too much to say that the life that you have is Christ. He is not just the the source of life, which He is, but He is life. And that is where His authority to bestow life comes from. Look Look at what He says. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Now this is a this is a text that we must handle with care. A misstep here can lead to wrongly defining the nature of the Son of God and the relationship between the Son and the Father. This is a, another statement of Jesus's that pushes our minds beyond what they can completely understand. But as we look at this, notice he begins with the word for, meaning Jesus is grounding the truth of his last statement that those who hear will live in the truth of this statement. The reason why those who hear will live is because of this right here. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. The question is, what does that mean? Well, there's actually two massive theological concepts or doctrines here that are touched on that we need to understand in order to understand what Jesus is saying. First is what theologians typically call the doctrine of aseity, or aseity. This is a word that is derived from Latin words, ase, which means of himself from himself. The doctrine of aseity is speaking of that which separates God from everything else. When Jesus says that the Father has life in himself, he is not just saying that the Father is a living being. Now, that's true for everyone. No, rather, what he is saying is that God alone exists by his own power. God alone has life in himself. 
God alone is a self-existent being. Every other form of life is a derivative life. Yours is a derivative life, meaning your life is dependent upon life that existed prior to your life. You have derived your life from pre-existent life. All creatures have derived their life, have derivative life. Whether we're talking about mankind or we're talking about animals or even the exalted angels of heaven, all have derived their life from an outside source. But not God. He is ase. He has the divine quality of aseity, meaning he has life in himself, derived from nowhere. He is life. He is the source of all life. He exists by his own power. This is getting at the essence of the very being of who God is. This is what makes God, God. He is the uncaused cause of all things. He is the unmoved mover of all things. And He is the uncreated creator of all things. He is the author and source and sustainer of all life. He is God. And He has never not been. And there is no God before Him, nor are there any gods after Him. He is God alone. Unlike anyone or anything else, He has life in himself. Just an incredible reality to think about. Now understanding that, we have to ask, how do we make sense of this second clause here? As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is where our minds start to hit max capacity. Because he does not say that he has granted the Son to have life. That would make sense. That would be easy to understand. But it would destroy the doctrine of the Trinity, and it would destroy the deity of Christ, for then Christ would be a mere creature. That's not what he says. We know that's not the case. And this gospel opened with a declaration of the preexistent internal nature of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is the eternal God. So how do, we, how do we make sense of this? How is it possible for it to be granted for one to have self-existent life, life in himself? Sentence seems to contradict itself. Well, it's because this language assumes another very important doctrine, and that is the eternal generation of the Son. That the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, this has been the confession of the church throughout the ages. The Nicene Creed of 325 A.D. phrased it like this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. It's a beautiful summation of his person. To speak of Jesus as eternally begotten is not to say that he had a beginning or an origin. He was not made. It is simply to affirm his shared essence with the Father and his eternal sonship. 
You see, the relational dynamics of the Trinity were not created in the Incarnation. Rather, they were revealed in the Incarnation. The Incarnation revealed the true nature of God. And so, just as mysterious as the eternal begotten nature of the Son is the eternal granting of self-existent life, of life in Himself. All of these things are tied up together in the eternal communications of the Father to the Son. Even though the word granted is used here, there was never a time when the Son did not have life in Himself. It was eternally granted from the Father to the Son. And so by their eternal unity and their eternal relations, both Father and Son have life in themselves. That's what's being said here. That's what's going on here. So understanding that, understanding that Christ is ase, helps us to understand both the authority and power of Christ, that same awe-inspiring characteristic of aseity belongs to the Son of God. It belongs to Christ. And the reason He has the authority and power to grant life to whomever He will is because He is life, and He is the source of life. This is why He literally says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is life. And not only is He life, but if you are in Christ, then He is your life. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. When looking at the second coming in Colossians 3, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Or a very similar idea in 1 John 5.11 this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, because Christ is life. The reason He has authority and power to give life is because He is life. And that's what He is here declaring to these Jews who are actively seeking to take his life. This is just unfathomable grace on display here. While, yes, he is revealing himself and warning of judgment that is to come, woven throughout this discourse is a gracious offer of life to all who would believe. Even here with men who have murderous intent, he extends mercy. I kind of wonder if Nicodemus was present for this. Because as we will see, he often is present with these Jewish leaders, but his heart just keeps softening throughout this gospel as we go on, as he sees the truth of who Christ is. The Christ is life. And if you are in Christ, then Christ has wielded this authority to give you life, to give you himself which means He's given you everything. And these things be true, how much should we live our lives and allow our lives to be dictated by the authority of Christ present now in our lives, 
the authority he has already wielded on our behalf. But his exercised authority does not stop there. In the present, it's exercised spiritually in the hearts of his people, but the day is coming when it will be exacted physically upon the entire world. Let's look now at his authority future. Look at verse 27. It says, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus is still talking about the Father and the Son here. That's who he's referencing when he says he has given him authority. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. And as we saw last week, this is judgment in totality. Verse 22, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. A claim which, of course, in and of itself was enough to send these Jewish leaders over the edge. Because as as we discussed, they knew and understand that the Bible, the Old Testament, is very clear that the prerogative to judge belongs to God and to God alone. But in this verse, Jesus pushes it further. And he gives them the reason why that authority has been given to him. He's drawing another line of connection for them of who he is. He says, he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Now, this is a different moniker than he has used before. He's called himself merely the Son in verses 19 through 24. He called himself the Son of God in verse 25. But now he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And there is massive significance to this. Now, when you look at the totality of Jesus' ministry in all of the Gospels, you actually find out that this is his favorite self-designation. And he used it more than anything else. And it has roots in the Old Testament in two different ways. The prophet Ezekiel used this term to reference himself over 90 times. And it was used in other parts of Scripture in the same way, simply to emphasize the humanity of a person. Ezekiel was a man, a mere man. He was a son of man. So in like fashion, there are times when Jesus is using this title to reference his own humanity, to emphasize the fact that he was truly a man. Though he was not merely a man, but he was truly a man. However, aside from that, there is a much more significant usage of this title that comes from one of the most significant prophecies in all of the Bible. And that comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, in which the prophet Daniel was given a vision of the apocalyptic Son of Man that is to come and is given all authority. Daniel said this in chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see the shocking thing about this prophecy. 
is that the kingdom of God and the service of God's people is given over to a man everlastingly. An exalted man, but a man nonetheless. And Jesus stands here before these Jews claiming that the reason why he has authority to judge the world is because he is that man. He is the Son of Man who will appear with the clouds of heaven to, him, to whom the everlasting kingdom of God is given and His dominion shall never pass away. You want to know why He has authority to judge the world? That is why. Because the world is His. It has been given to Him. And therefore it will submit to the power of His voice. Look at this. Look at what he tells the Jews. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus tells them not to marvel at this. Now that may sound like a surprising thing to say with the gravity of what he's teaching them. But the reason he tells them not to marvel is he's talking about his previous statement. The antecedent to this is the authority to execute judgment given to the Son of Man. They should not marvel at that for the very reason that this prophecy was known by them. The Jews were very familiar with the book of Daniel, with Daniel 7. And if their hearts were not dull and they had eyes to see and ears to hear, they should have recognized their own Messiah. They should have recognized his messianic identity. But as John told us in the prologue, Jesus came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. They did not recognize who he was. But then Jesus proceeds to tell them exactly what will happen when he exercises his authority to judge using very similar language to this prophecy from Daniel, drawing their minds back to the book of Daniel again. At the end of the book of Daniel, the last chapter, Daniel gets a glimpse at the end of all things in chapter 12. And it says this. It says, There shall be a time of trouble such as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name will be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You see, Jesus is playing off Daniel's prophecy. But he's explaining more of what is going to happen using the language that would draw their minds back to what they already knew, that which is familiar. But he explains how the dead will rise. And he makes it clear that it is all who are in the tombs. Every person who has ever lived will be resurrected from the dead. Every single one who has ever lived 
lived. Anyone you can think of, whether you think of Alexander the Great or Paul the Apostle, Jonathan Edwards or Adolf Hitler, everyone in your lineage, everyone you've ever known, everyone you've ever met, including you, will rise from the dead. Every soul will experience resurrection. And they will be resurrected in submission and in response to the voice of the Lord of glory. And Jesus has already given illustrative demonstrations of His power to do this. At the end of, verse, of chapter 4, with the royal official coming to Him, with the boy, the royal official's son, sick and dying in bed, miles away, He responded to the voice of Jesus when Jesus told his dad, Your son lives. Or at the beginning of this chapter, the event that started this whole controversy, when a man who was a 38-year invalid, who was superstitiously waiting on a magical pool to heal him, Jesus simply walks up to him with the power of his voice, says, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man was instantly and completely healed. And he will give one more final demonstration of this power before his own death and resurrection, when in John chapter 11, Jesus allows his friend Lazarus to die, that his power and glory may be revealed. It was then that he walks up to the tomb of Lazarus, who had been dead for four days already, and simply says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out of there. Alive as ever before. This is omnipotent power on display. All of the signs of this book are pointing to who he is and what he will do on this last day. But this display of power will be beyond anything anyone has ever imagined. It won't just be one tomb. It is every grave. Every person who has ever lived and died will hear his voice and rise from the dead. But despite that, Jesus says, despite the fact that we're talking about billions upon billions of people, there will only be two types of people who rise from the dead with two very different destinations. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, when Jesus juxtaposes here those who have done good with those who have done evil, he's not turning this into salvation by works. That would contradict everything else in this book. If that were the case, no one would need a Savior. Just do good. That's not at all what he's saying. So what does he mean by those who have done good? Well, The antithesis here is actually about those who have lived by faith in the promises of God versus those who do not. As we saw when we were in chapter 3, those who live by faith are those who live in the light and are not afraid to come to the light. But those who do not come to the light are those who do not want their evil deeds exposed by the light. As it pertains to the good that we are to do, chiefly it is about our belief, our faith. Jesus explains this in the very next chapter. In chapter 6, the crowd asks him, what must we do? do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus will answer them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. 
That right there is the ultimate reality by which we will be judged. The good that we must do is believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to put our trust in Him. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't mishear me. True belief produces a life that bears fruit, a life of obedience to Christ. As John will say in 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in them. We must have a faith that produces fruit, absolutely. But the thing that makes the difference between heaven and hell is not how many good works you do as a believer. It is whether or not you are trusting in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the good that he is referencing here. And those who are trusting in him are resurrected unto life. True life. Not corrupted life that we experience now. Real life. Eternal life. It is then in the resurrection that all who followed him, all of us who believe, will be given new bodies. Resurrected bodies. Philippians 3 says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. These are bodies that are not dying and breaking down due to the corruption of sin. Bodies that are not susceptible to injury or disease or aches and pains. Bodies that are not given to temptations or stress or worry or doubt. Bodies that are not even capable of any form of sin. Imagine that. Rather, they will be glorified bodies that are immortal, imperishable, made to be just like the sun, shining with the brightness of the sky above. As John says in his epistle, chapter 3, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That is the most glorious thing about our future state. Who we will be made to be, the bodies that we will receive, will be bodies that are fit and have the capacity to dwell in the very presence of God without experiencing total annihilation. We will see Him as He really is. The mind cannot even comprehend what is in store for the believer on that great day. But the unbeliever has a very different destiny. When Jesus says, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, he speaks of those who have not trusted. Those who have done evil are those who have not trusted but rejected God by rejecting the Son whom he has sent. They are those who have willingly remained in their slavery to sin. And they too will be resurrected from the dead. Theirs is a resurrection of judgment. The idea is judgment with condemnation. They too will be given new bodies. Immortal bodies. Bodies that will always be dying, but never dead. 
bodies that continue in slavery to sin for all of eternity. Continual rebellion to the one who created them, the state that they chose to remain in. Only worse, because the restraining grace of God and the common grace of God that is upon them now will be removed, revealing the totality of the evil of the human heart, which is beyond what we even know. One of the reasons their punishment never ends is because their rebellion never ends. The book of Revelation says that they will be cast into the lake of fire where the smoke of the torment will go up forever and ever and they will have no rest day or night. The starkness of the contrast of these two destinies could not be exaggerated. And it should strike fear in the heart of every thinking human being. And it is just. It is right. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, says Abraham? The answer is yes, he will. And Jesus makes that clear in verse 30. He comes back to these ideas he's already gone over in order to assure these Jews who are there of the justice of these judgments that will be executed. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The power and authority that the Son wields, He wields by the will of the Father. And notice that he switched from speaking in the third person to the first person here. He personalized it. I am the judge, and my judgment is just because I am carrying out the will of the one who sent me. This is his will. And specifically, he's talking to these Jews, and he makes it clear that he's talking about the God you claim to serve. It is by his will that I will judge you. Heavy. But Christ is here offering grace even to these Jews who are seeking to kill him. These are sobering things to think about. But these truths are more sure than anything else in life. You may not know what tomorrow holds, You may not know what is going to happen in our economy. You may not know what will happen with all the geopolitical tensions in the world. You may not know what will take place in your family or with your personal finances. But you can bank on this. This day is coming and these events will unfold and they will be upon us faster than we can imagine. And for that reason, this is what ought to be driving our lives. If your entire life is focused on making sure that you've accumulated enough stuff or enough experiences in this world or that one day you'll have a great retirement where you can just do nothing, you are living for the temporal rather than the eternal. And the reality is, with the way our country is going, the boomer generation might be the last generation that even has the opportunity to retire. I'm not saying retirement is wrong. Don't, Don't take it that way. 
but we can't bank on these things. We can't live for these things. All of this is temporal. None of it is guaranteed. We are to be good stewards of the lives that God has given us and live in the light of that which is guaranteed, in the light of coming eternity. The authority of Christ, both present and future, should drive us to live very differently than the world around us. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in Christ. And the day of judgment for us believers is a glorious day. It is a glorious day. It is when our faith becomes sight and we are ushered into the kingdom of God. Live for that and you will be less worried about this world that is falling down around us. And if you are terrified of the day of judgment, it is likely for good reason. For you, I implore you to flee to Christ. His mercy is open to you this day. You don't have to be terrified of that day if you will just trust in Him. He is your only hope. He is the only refuge of the wrath that is to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are heavy realities for our hearts to process. But embedded in them is glorious truth about what you have done and what you will do on behalf of your people. Lord, help us to have eternal perspectives. Help us to be heavenly-minded people. Help us to be good stewards of our lives now that we may care for those around us who are all eternal souls that we come in contact with. Give us the boldness and courage to speak of these truths and to share the gospel with those who don't know it. And help us to love you with the way that we live our lives. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for life. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.